from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, March 16th. I'm Marco Werman. Today, what it's like for veterans to come home from war. It feels incredible. I never thought how good sleeping in would feel. You're sleeping in a, in a nice warm bed, putting on a fresh pair of socks in the morning. But there's also the negative side, like PTSD. It took a 225-pound fighting machine, breaking down, crying in the shower, alone, for me to realize that something was wrong. The personal stories of veterans back from Iraq and Afghanistan, coming up on this special edition of The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today we're going to spend the hour of the program on veterans who've come home, veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, what the return is like and how hard it can be, and stories of adjustment and moving forward after, in many cases, having lived through horrors, but also camaraderie in places most of us have a hard time imagining. Let's begin with a story of homecoming. Last Friday we heard from Patricia Hole of Framingham, Massachusetts, Her 22-year-old son, Alex, was on his way back from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. That's where he spent a month after completing his second tour of duty in Afghanistan. Patricia and Alex Hole are in the studio with me here in Boston. And Alex, first of all, welcome home. Thank you very much. When did you get back? Well, we got back in the States on February 6th, and I got back to, uh, to Framingham this past Saturday. What does it feel like? It feels incredible. Uh, it's something you can't describe, just, you know, not seeing your friends and family for this long and then coming back and, and finally they're back in your world again what were you expecting with the homecoming uh you know I'm, I'm a very simple guy you know i just want to come home and you know sit down and have a beer with my parents and see my friends and and then sleep in a nice bed did you have that beer i did i had a few of them <laughs> patricia how about you i mean describe the moment uh when you first saw alex again after the second deployment when I see Alex walk into Camp Lejeune, the only more exciting night was the night he was born. It's incredible to watch him walk in on two legs, healthy. Um, it's it's thrilling. I see you've got his dog tag around your neck. I do. This is the dog tag that he wore in his boot during his first deployment. He gave it to me when he came home. It was my ritual. I wore it every day when he was away. It was my way of doing something. And I see it's sitting on top of a peace sign. Tell me about that. Yes, it is. Um, uh, I'm very much a peace activist, so having a son in the Marines has been very conflicting for me in many ways. But you realize that you love these kids, and I wanted to support them in any way I could. Alex has the biggest heart of anyone I've ever known. Go back to when Alex was away at the end of his uh, first deployment or whenever you learned he was going back for a second deployment. Describe that and what you were thinking, Patricia. 
learning he was going back, um, I knew it was going to be worse because we knew about the first time. Alex kept a journal the first time he was away, and I had read that journal. It was a difficult read, and knowing he was going to walk into that again was pretty tough. Was it worse the second time around, Alex? Yes. My experience in my first deployment, we were mounted platoon, which means like we were in trucks, and then my second deployment, we were uh, we were foot mobile, and uh, the dangers of being on the ground are so much worse than being in a truck. You know, if if something happens, you don't have all this armor surrounding you, and it's just the injuries are so much worse. And what you saw in Afghanistan, and one of the areas of the most intense military operations, Helmand Province, must have made you feel at times as if you may never come home. A lot of your buddies paid a heavy price there. Yes, they did. Like, I had a couple of them who paid the ultimate sacrifice, and I have uh, quite a few of them who lost limbs. And I have a bracelet on for my uh, my buddy, Christopher Levy, who uh, who died in early December. And I, I wore the bracelet for him because I want people to know his story. Let me ask you about him. Tell me about your buddy. Uh, my buddy, Christopher Levy, was from North Carolina. He was one of our combat replacements. He came to us late in the deployment. But, uh, I mean, in the short time I knew him, he's just a great guy. I mean, he's just, he was a guy you could easily talk to. You know, if you're having a rough day, you could you, you could talk to him anytime. And then one day, you know, he was taken away from us. And it's just, it, was, it broke my platoon's heart. I want to go back to what, what your mother was thinking while you were getting ready for your second deployment. I mean, you must have known. I'm sure you spoke with her about that. And you must have known what was going through her mind. How did you deal with that? How did you allay... Her fears, how did you allay your own fears? You know, I broke the news to my mother, and, you know, I knew she'd be worried. I knew um, I knew my family would be worried. But, uh, you know, when, when when we got over there, you know, I remember stepping off the plane and being like, oh, I'm back in this country, you know. It felt like I just left. But uh, for almost the whole deployment, I was a squad leader. So, you know, it, it may sound a little selfish, but I had to kind of put the home front aside and focus on the mission just to get my boys home and get me home. I want to ask you about that mission, uh, especially in light of events uh, recently. Uh, so let me ask you about those events and how it affects the mission, what you did. Uh, the, the, the sergeant who allegedly walked off base and massacred 16 Afghans, you worked so hard to achieve what you did, and so many questions have now been raised about what the mission is and whether we should even be in Afghanistan. What were your thoughts when you heard that news last weekend? It, it just kind of ruins – it doesn't – ruin it just tarnishes our name and just you know everything we've done over there because you know our day-to-day mission was to go out and talk to these afghans and and you know interact with them and you know sit down and have chai and and have bread with them building relationships and building trust with the locals and the elders and the mullahs and now because the actions of this one man you know it just it, it sets us back Alex and Patricia, we're about to hear from a number of vets who've been back for a year or more. They've had time to reflect on what they've been through and where they're going. You've had just a few days. What are your fresh, just-arrived thoughts about the months ahead? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much just getting ready for the future. I mean, like towards the end of deployment, I've just been thinking about the next step in my life. You know, my last deployment was pretty tough coming back, and, you know, I didn't really know how to do it very well. You know, I made some mistakes, and, you know, I learned, and I talked to people, and some of the things they said, you know, I bring up again in my mind about how it helped me, you know, adjust. And I, this time around, the adjustment is a lot easier. Patricia, what are your concerns uh, about moving forward? Uh, not just Alex, but how he's going to remesh with the family. 
I think my husband and I are just realizing, especially after this more dangerous deployment, um, the support uh, that we're going to have to give Alex as a family. Um, Alex hides things well, and um, I know he's happy to be home. I know I'll be real happy when it's all over and his contract is up. Um, but having had conversations with him in this last week and reading a letter that he wrote us, um, it's really starting to hit us. Um, there's work to be done here as a family to support him and make sure that he steps into his life in the fullest way possible. When you talk about that letter, can you share a bit of it with us and what really concerned you? Is that okay? Alex wrote us a letter to explain why he didn't keep a journal. He kept a journal the first deployment because I had asked him to. Um, he wrote us a letter explaining why he couldn't keep the journal, and the biggest reason was because he was in such danger every day. Um, he was in one of the most dangerous spots in the country. Um, he was also in a leadership position, and he had men he had to care for. So he didn't really have the time to write a journal. He didn't have the energy to write a journal. He also explained that he's coming home a different man. And that is hard to read. Um, I wonder what's not there anymore of Alex. Uh, that's a little bit scary for a mother. Um, but he's got a family who adores him, and we want to do everything we can for him. And I think he's got a lot of plans. Uh, he wants to go to school, um, and I, I, I know he'll, he'll make a great life. Alex Hole is a Marine who's just gotten back from Afghanistan. Patricia Hole is his mother. Thank you both very much for coming in and being a part of our conversation about coming home. Thank you, Marco. Thank you. Our program today is entirely devoted to veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've asked them and their families to share their homecoming experiences with us. Hundreds of responses have poured in, and those stories are driving our coverage this hour. We're going to hear three stories now about how hard it's been for many vets to readjust to civilian life. My name is Ben Hartford from Hillsborough, New Hampshire. I served two tours in Afghanistan with the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. My homecoming was surreal. Sometimes I wonder if everyone around is walking with a mask on or if I'm the one with the mask on. I left my wife and infant daughter and came back to my wife, toddler daughter, and infant son. And then there was everything in between. Nobody said what I was feeling was okay. Nobody even mentioned anything at all like I was feeling. My wife didn't know what I was feeling till much later. I did my job in Afghanistan, and I'm proud to have done my job. And when I came home, I had soldiers to train, and I'm proud to have trained those soldiers. But every morning was get up, go run, fight, push-ups, climb a rope, always fighting something. It took a 225-pound fighting machine breaking down, crying in the shower, alone, for me to realize that something was wrong. I still avoid the news. The soldier in Kandahar province? Um, terrible. Eventually, I spent a week at the VA hospital in White River Junction, Vermont. They changed my meds. They've since changed my meds again. And given all that, but for missing my children and my wife, I would go back. So I guess I'm angry and happy and numb, very numb. That's my mask then, isn't it? I guess that's my 90 seconds. And I'm Matt Holtzman from Orlando, Florida. I served one tour in Afghanistan with the United States Marine Corps. 
When you're in country, you wake up with an unparalleled sense of purpose that disappears the day you get home. Suddenly, you come home to all the news that nobody wanted to bother you with while you were deployed. The friends' parents that died, the divorces that happened, the friends that were laid off. You come home to endless, unthinkable choices, like 30 types of cereal. Truly overwhelming choice. So what's it like coming home? It was frustrating because your sense of purpose is gone. It was maddening to hear the petty problems that upset civilians going about their everyday lives two weeks after your one of your brothers was blown up. Um, I was in line for groceries one day, and some woman was yelling at the checkout counter about an expired coupon. And I wanted so badly to slap her and tell her about Lance Corporal Swanson that just gave his life for her security. Instead, I walked away. But I struggled for months with similar experiences. I am Carrie Donahoe from Los Angeles, California. I served one tour in Kuwait and Iraq with the U.S. Army. I had very mixed feelings about coming home because for me, coming home was coming home to Germany, my permanent duty station. I was deployed at the very beginning of the war when there was no toilets, no showers, and we couldn't call home very frequently. And when we did, it was usually in a public setting where everyone else was waiting to call home. Um, after coming, after being gone for so long, the anticipation of returning was really very strange. My battalion had become my family, and my husband had really become a stranger. Um, when I returned, it was awkward for both of us. I felt like there was an entire part of my life that he had missed, and he felt like there was an entire part of his life that I had missed. It was really stressful and hard on both of us. Um, I went to Portugal to just think about things for a little while, and the day after I got there, my husband called and said, I'm at the airport, and I'm coming to your hotel. Um, when I knew he was coming, I had butterflies in my stomach, and at that point, I knew everything was going to be fine. Um, so to my surprise, the most amazing part of coming back was having the chance of falling in love with the same great person all over again. Amazing stories from vets, all of them. We have more online. See some of the veterans who shared their stories via video at theworld.org slash return. Our special edition of The World continues after the break here on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is a special edition of The World. Today we're hearing from war veterans, people like Major Todd Polk, who did two tours in Afghanistan. He told us his job would have been impossible without interpreters on the ground. They were my, not, not only my mouthpiece, but just my window into the culture, into the world of our Afghan counterparts and civilian populace. Without them, I was pretty much useless. Being an interpreter for the U.S. military often comes with a deadly price tag. To protect themselves and their families, many Afghan and Iraqi translators have fled their homes. Some follow the returning U.S. veterans to the United States. That's how a number of Iraqi families ended up settling not far from our Boston studios. This is Lowell, about 45 minutes north of Boston. It's a small former mill town, and with the snow and ice that covered the streets recently, well, it just doesn't seem a likely destination for Iraqis. But there are two Iraqi restaurants now in Lowell, 
One of them, Babylon, is here on the main drag. It helps to ease the homesickness for the 50 Iraqi families who live in Lowell. We'll get back to Babylon in a moment for lunch. First, though, meet a man who is an Iraqi refugee, but in a way, he's also a returned veteran. Hi. Hey, guys. How are Ahmad, you? Nice to meet you. Nice I'm Marco. Nice to meet you, brother. Ahmad al-Nislamawi arrived in Lowell about four months ago. He lives with his wife and daughter on the second floor of a row house where cold drafts bleed into the hallways. Ahmad's apartment is warmer, and when I go in, his daughter smiles shyly at me and then returns to watching cartoons. Ahmad offers me tea, coffee, and water. To look at him, it seems Ahmad's time working for the American troops in Baghdad has influenced his style. He's clean-cut, his beard is precise, and his body is in top physical shape. He looks like a U.S. soldier on leave. Ahmad was 16 when the U.S. invaded Iraq and toppled the government of Saddam Hussein. I'm not a big fan of Saddam. Like you see a lot of Iraqis, oh, we love Saddam, whatever, you know, but I'm not a big fan of him because he already executed two of my uncles and two of my aunts. So I was really happy when the U.S. troops came into Iraq, invaded Iraq. After high school, Ahmad al-Nislamawi got a job with the U.S. Army as a translator. Almost every day for five years, he went everywhere his American company of soldiers went, patrol after patrol. He wore the same uniform as the U.S. soldiers and faced the same risks of being attacked, of being blown up. But there were other risks as well, which his American Army colleagues did not face. When I go out and translate for the U.S. Army, people looking at me like, you're not a good guy. You're, you're, you're not a good guy. And some of them say to me face to face that, you're going to get killed one day. Some of my Iraqi police I used to train with the U.S. troops, uh, they were from my neighborhood. They went to high school with me. So they knew who I am. They knew where I live. They knew where my parents live. They knew where my daughter and wife live. So once these people tell other people, I'll be done. Still, Ahmad was earning a living, and at least he was working with people who had become his friends. But in 2010, things started to change. The U.S. began its pullout from Iraq. I was enjoying it, working for U.S. Army. But when these people started pulling over out of Iraq, I was like, it's time to leave Iraq. Because once these guys leave, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get killed or whatever else going to happen to me. Did you express those concerns to the Americans? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, the military helped me a lot with the immigration. They signed all my papers. They helped me out a lot. Ahmad resettled here in Lowell with his wife and daughter. He got help from the State Department and the International Institute of New England. They've provided this apartment and a small income while he looks for work. Today, though, Ahmad is meeting some new Iraqi friends who also live in Lowell for lunch. As we park, Ahmad jumps out of the car to greet a diminutive older man. They pat each other on the back and chat in Arabic. This man is also named Ahmad. He's the manager of the Iraqi restaurant where we're going to eat. We walk past a few vacant storefronts and arrive at the bright blue facade of Babylon. You're welcome. It's owned by Ahmad's 25-year-old daughter, Leila al-Zubaydi. The Zubaydi family got to Lowell a little over a year ago. Should we get just the Babylon chicken? 
looks like the house special. We'll just share that. The, this is uh, a great idea for the group of people yeah. because, like, uh, the four from four to six people. Leila Al Zubedi tells me her family didn't know what to expect when they arrived here. It's like starting up the life from the zero. You know, you don't have friends, you don't have family, you don't have apartments, you don't have anything, anything. You know. Their resettlement agency helped the Zubedis with the paperwork to secure loans and grants to open Babylon. States are giving a lot, a lot of opportunities, and you just pick it, you know. You can get the financial aid, you can get the sponsorship, you can get the job, you can, you can get a lot of things, you know, just to start to build, you know. So it's kind of like big adventure, so we are trying to get our chances. But the adventure has had its ups and downs. Earlier this year, a man threw a brick through the front window of Babylon. It prompted a strong reaction within the Lowell community. A large group of local vets organized an eat-in at Babylon, filling the 50-seat restaurant. Ahmad Al-Zubedi doesn't know why his window was smashed, but he sees only the upside. This incident gave me more friends. A lot of people come here, support with us. I cry and my life cry because we saw this. It is very, very I happy because I have now more, a lot friends. And not just new American friends like the vets and companions they brought to Babylon, but Iraqi friends too. Layla translates for her father about something he didn't expect the broken window would lead to. What he's saying, he's saying that the Iraqi community here uh, after that incident that we had, accident, so uh, they made the Iraqi people together. It doesn't matter. They are Sunni, they are Shi, they are Christian, they are whatever, you know. They, ma- they became closer to each other. They became more supporting to each other. And uh, what he's saying, like, we were the, that seed which made the flower grow. That flower is blooming at Babylon. For Layla and her family, the restaurant has brought them friends, community, and a livelihood. For new arrival Ahmad al-Nislamawi, though, resettling as a refugee in Lowell has been a mixed blessing. My mom used to make a lot of that chicken. Reminds me of Iraq, especially the onions on site. He's made new friends and has found a community, but he needs a job. He wants to continue working as a translator, even if that means going back to Baghdad for a stint inside the green zone. I've been trying to get a job in a U.S. embassy in Baghdad so I can work, this, I can do the same job I used to do but civilian side, not, not military side. To live in a same place, which is the U.S. embassy compound, but, but working for them as a translator. But they still don't have jobs yet. In that respect, Ahmad al-Nislamawi is very much like many American vets. His biggest battle now is to find work. But unlike those vets... Coming back to a place called home is something that Ahmad does not have. You can see photos of my visit to Babylon in Lowell, Massachusetts. They're at theworld.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, the extra challenges women soldiers face in a war zone. The men's bathroom wasn't locked. It was just the women's bathroom. They weren't even, you know, sugar-coated. Oh, yeah, no, we've had a couple rapes, so that's what we had to do. And you better believe that I showered with my rifle, like, on the towel hook. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Our program today is focusing on veterans and the challenges they face coming home from war. One of the biggest challenges is post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. The case of the U.S. soldier accused of killing 16 Afghan villagers last Sunday is a shocking reminder of that. Unnamed officials and a lawyer hired by the soldier's family have suggested that PTSD was a factor. We're not going to discuss that case. Instead, we're going to hear the stories of vets who answered our call to share their experiences. Many of those stories relate to the challenges of PTSD. And this one stood out. I'm James Davey from Atlanta, Georgia. I served two tours in Iraq as an Army medic. The hardest thing for me was trying to figure out when I got back who I was supposed to be. Um, My second tour was pretty bad. And early on in it, I decided that the only way for me to be able to keep myself sane was to decide that there wasn't much of a chance for me to make it home. I figured if I made that decision, then I wouldn't worry about it every day. I could just sort of do what I was supposed to do and and come what may. Um, The problem is that I did. I did make it home. When I did come home, I went to nursing school, and all the way through nursing school, I felt utterly displaced. I felt like no one really expected me to be there, and I didn't really expect me to be there either. Um, every day when I wake up, I'm presented with challenges that I don't know how to face, and it can be a little overwhelming at times, and, um, and I couldn't talk to my wife about them. How, how are you going to say that to your wife? Sorry, honey. I didn't really anticipate having to do a career because I thought I'd be dead. So, you know, who do you talk to? There's, there's nobody to talk to. They're completely disconnected from everyone. Um, I occasionally talk to my old army buddies, but that just devolves into us griping for a while and then not knowing what to say. You know, I don't understand why I'm the one that survived when there are other people that I feel like could have faced the challenges of life a lot better than me. And, and they didn't. And that feels unfair. It's getting better. That's the good news. I'm glad to have the opportunity. For a while, I wasn't. For a while, I was not glad to have had the opportunity. For a while, I felt, uh, I don't want to say cheated, but I am grateful for every moment that I have, and I am grateful that I have the support network that I have, and I do look forward to meeting these challenges in the future. Veteran James Davey in Atlanta, Georgia, talking about his struggle to transition back to civilian life. Now, most veterans returning from the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan don't suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, but the Veterans Administration estimates that 30 percent do have PTSD. So who's vulnerable to PTSD? How do you recognize it? And how can someone with PTSD be helped? We asked David Stone to help us separate fact from fiction. Stone is a veteran himself and a counselor at the Boston Vet Center. Everybody handles stress differently. I've seen people that were infantrymen gone into the initial invasion, been through hell, carnage, and everything else, and have no PTSD. And I've seen, you know, a supply clerk that never left the compound gets 50% PTSD. The other thing about PTSD, it's cumulative. So depending on your childhood, so if you grew up in a rough neighborhood, we're witnessed 
to a lot of horrific things as a child, you know, death and destruction, drugs, dealers, people shot in the streets in front of you. I mean, that's obviously that's trauma and trauma builds up sooner or later. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. But there is no set definition of if you're a combat veteran, you're going to have PTSD. No. Everybody's individual. Everybody's different. Right. And, of course, we should be careful with these labels because there's concern, especially among uh, returning vets, about employability and career prospects if all vets end up by getting labeled as unstable in some way. The vet centers, we're not going to label you. We don't label you. You have PTSD. We treat the person, not the symptoms. You are Jim, John, Sally, whatever your name is. You're the person. As an individual, right. And in the process, give you coping skills to deal with the PTSD. Let's break for a moment, please, David, to hear from one veteran who answered our call to tell their stories. Hi, my name is Garrett Anderson, and I served in Iraq and Afghanistan with the United States Marine Corps from 2003 to 2007. It definitely wasn't what I thought it was going to be coming back home, but I think a lot of the factors that contributed to my breakdown were things like uh, not realizing that after somebody sees such horrible things, uh, uh, like I did in, uh, in the Battle of Fallujah, it's hard to make that stuff kind of go away. I encountered an attempted suicide uh, in uh, March of 2008 after I was discharged from the Marine Corps. I wasn't sleeping well. I was disturbed by the war. Uh, I had uh, very intense memories uh, that I couldn't get out of, out of my mind. And it really, war shook my soul. Uh, and I think it's, it's understandable. Uh, but I didn't realize how, pro- how bad my my problems were until I tried to hang myself. Uh, that led to a, a road to recovery. I've had two hospitalizations since then. And uh, I take it day by day. The days are looking better than they used to when I first got out. But I had no idea that war would do what it did to me. I just hope anybody out there who's struggling with, with similar issues uh, is able to find help and, uh, and keep moving. That's Marine uh, Garrett Anderson, who uh, saw action in Fallujah in Iraq. He's fortunate, uh, David Stone, in that he seems to be talking about these very upsetting episodes in his life and slowly moving forward. How do you recognize PTSD in oneself or in a loved one? What, what are the signs? Well, some of the signs are anger, irritability, feeling nervous, difficulty trusting others, problems with authority, feeling grief and sadness, Uh, Low tolerance for stress, uh, isolation, uh, nightmares, substance abuse, trouble sleeping, anxiety, paranoia. These are all symptoms of PTSD, but those are also all symptoms of stress. You know, this this individual came back and, you know, didn't realize that they had these issues. And and many people do. They come back and there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. It's when you have people come up to you and say, hey, you know, you really need to talk to somebody or you used to have 20 friends and now you're down to one, those are obviously signs that, you know, you're pushing people away. Uh, The people around you are going to notice change. Everybody has changes when they come back from a war zone. I don't care if you sat on a fob and never did anything. You're going to change because, one, you're getting rocketed and mortared, and like I said, everybody handles that differently. You come back home. You've been gone for a year. People have changed. Somebody's, you know, cutting the grass plowing, shoveling, writing the checks, taking the kids. So when you come back after you've been gone for a year, you feel out of place. Not only that, you've just been 24-7 with the same group of people for a year, 24-7. You come back home and poof, they're gone. Mm. So the support network you had, that's gone. And then you try and fit back into family and friends. You've been gone for a year. You feel out of place. You feel a little bit weird. How do I fit back in here? What's going on? And there's those things. And, you know, normal readjustment, 90, 180 days. But it can go on for years. I mean, my own experience is, you know, 4th of July. 4th of July will never be the same. 
Uh, and for many returning veterans, it will never be the same. And why not? What, what, what happened to you and your well, time in Iraq? I mean, how did you change? I was in Taji, which was eight miles north of Baghdad. We get mortared and rocket three, four times you know, a week, maybe a day. In a war zone, you expect to see that. You expect to hear that. You hear the explosion, stuff like that. Mm. When you come back home and you're sitting in your safe place, you're sitting in your living room, you don't expect to hear war. So 4th of July, when people are firing off firecrackers, it becomes very uneasy. I can go to fireworks. I can watch the fireworks. But if you light fireworks off behind me and I don't see them, you're going to be peeling me off the ceiling or I'm, you know, it's very, uh, very stressful. I mean, when I first came home, my neighbor was daughter's birthday party. They were having, you know, fireworks. And I'm crawled up in my couch just playing, asking them to please stop. It was just, mm. I'm home. I'm supposed to be safe. Yet I hear these things going off that remind me or bring me back to Iraq or Afghanistan. What advice do you have for loved ones of returned vets in terms of intervening in their lives if they're seriously disturbed before they attempt suicide? I mean, Marine Garrett Anderson, who we just heard from, I mean, he's very lucky in that he didn't succeed. Roger. I mean, there's so many organizations out there for returning veterans. You have the VA. You have the vet centers. Our services are free and confidential. Uh, The VA is obviously just for the veterans, but the VA also has a crisis hotline which is 1-800-273-8255, or TALK. It's not a suicide prevention hotline, it's a crisis hotline. So if anybody, family members, is worried about their, their loved ones, they can give them a call. If the veteran wants to give them a call, they'll get them in touch with the services. Given the number of, of returning vets and, and you know the various services that are provided for them, are you optimistic about their mental health coming down the road in the future? I think the one thing I will tell you about counseling or therapy, whatever you want to call it is, you know, it only works if you use it. So, you know, if you broke your arm and you went to a doctor and he set your arm in properly, you wouldn't walk around with a broken arm. You'd go see another doctor, get it set properly. Mm. The same thing works with counseling. If you walk in to see a counselor and, you know, you just have a terrible experience, you say, screw that, I'm never going back, it's not for me, forget it. The only person you're hurting is yourself. You know, it may not be the first counselor you talk with, it may not be the second, may not be the third. There's all these different types of therapies out there, but you know what? The biggest healing process is the trust you build between you and your therapist, you and your counselor. And when you have that trust, it's amazing what can happen. You have one unusual technique to help PTSD victims let go of their issues, or at least help them try. Tell us uh, how that works. Well, I mean, ceremonies are a great way of helping come to terms with events. So I had a veteran that you know, he had been through a horrific event. Uh, a close friend of his has, has, had died in Iraq. His uh, sergeant committed suicide. And so in a war zone, you don't have time to grieve. So they'll do a quick ceremony and you go out the next day, you're going out doing the same thing again. So there's really no time to grieve. So what I did was with this one individual was we, we, we did a ceremony. I had him write a letter to his friend and to his platoon sergeant you know, saying the things that he wanted to say that he didn't get a chance to say. I had him take that and seal it up in a letter. I don't read whatever they write. That's very personal. That's between him and the person they're writing it to. And because there are no Iraq or Afghan war memorials around yet, uh, we went down to a war memorial. We went to the flagpole. I had him take that letter. I had him burn the letter there. And we just stood there and watched it, watched it burn. We watched the the white letter go from white to black to ash. It was a very 
beautiful and moving event. And then have him pick up the ashes and scatter the ashes. And it's a way for him to let go so that his words reached the individual. And for him, it worked out tremendously. You know, probably three, four weeks later after that, you know, he had, he had improved so much just by being able to let go, to cope with it. The thing with PTSD or anything horrific is you can't make sense of, you can't make sense of carnage, death, and destruction. You just can't make sense of it. But what you can do is come to terms with it, make peace with it. You can turn to drugs, you can bury it. But sooner or later, if you haven't dealt with it, if you're not coming to peace with it, you're not coming to terms with it, it comes back. It's, you can bury it for so long, your subconscious is going to bring it back. So it's a way of you know coming to terms, coming to peace with it. David Stone is a counselor at the Boston Vet Center whose job it is to reach out to vets from Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you very much for coming in, David. Well, thank you for having me. Here's someone else who deals with a lot of trauma, though in a way much different from David Stone. How do they expect a man to do the things that I have, come back and be the same? Uh, my name is Jason Moon. I served in Iraq with the uh, Wisconsin Army National Guard from 03 to 04, and now I use music to help veterans heal. And I'm trying to find my way home. Child inside me, long dead and gone, somewhere between, lost and alone, trying to find my way home. Jason Moon joins us from his home in Milwaukee. Jason, post-deployment trauma and the transition uh, to living back stateside for vets features in a lot of your music. Are you writing these songs for other vets? I guess yes and no. I, I started writing them for myself just as a way to capture these emotions, but now it's turned into something much larger, and so I am working on music for other veterans. And you've been using sales of your CD, Can't Find My Way Home, is the title track, and concerts to raise money for a nonprofit you've started called Warrior Songs. What are you aiming to do? Well, I had such a positive effect by the songs on other veterans as I traveled around the country that I decided to start my own nonprofit, which will not only facilitate performing these songs for other veterans at various locations, usually which don't have funding to get a musician out there, but also to take the stories and poems of other veterans uh, who've had experiences I haven't and translate those into song, uh, thus giving voice to the veterans through music and allowing the public to be more easily educated because uh, everyone likes a good song. Lately it's occurred to me It's hard to fight an enemy Lives inside of your head Spend my life in between the sleepless nights and the bad dreams. I think I might rather be dead. And I'm trying to find my way home. It's a form of music therapy, it sounds like. What do the vets tell you when they go to your shows and they hear your music? Does it help them open up? Sometimes the big, strong ones begrudgingly tell me that it made them cry. Oftentimes I hear, that's what I've been trying to say. It gave them voice, um, and they'll take this CD and they'll play it uh, for their family members, for their loved ones, for their friends. And uh, each song on the CD kind of tackles a different issue of readjustment, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the things that a warrior goes through when they come home, and they'll, and they'll use it to point to 
this, this is what I've been trying to say. Child inside me, long dead and gone, somewhere between, lost and alone. Jason Moon, Iraq vet, singer-songwriter and founder of the nonprofit Warrior Songs. Thanks very much. Thank you. So how do they expect a man to see the things that I have come back and be the same? Our special edition of The World continues in a moment on PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is a special edition of The World. All this hour, we've been hearing stories about veterans and how difficult it's been for them to come home from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Women have served in those conflicts in unprecedented numbers, and overall, women account for 8% of U.S. veterans. Both in deployment and at home, female veterans face challenges that their male counterparts don't. That includes a Veterans Administration that's still working on improving its services for women. Reporter Susan Kaplan has more. It's not easy for 11 women to live together, much less 11 homeless veterans. But life at this shelter offers a respite from the streets. It offers security. There's an almost home-like atmosphere. This is the dinner menu list, okay? Actually, tonight's a night off. Jackie Kay's house is a small duplex cottage run by a nonprofit called Soldier On at the Veterans Administration in Leeds, Massachusetts. It's one of only a handful of homeless shelters exclusively for women vets in the U.S., and there's often a waiting list. There's a lot of trauma in the house and a lot of PTSD. Social worker Lori McGrath says despite constant efforts to make the house feel like a home, the reality is that the women here are suffering badly. They aren't choosing to live with these people, um, and they you know, come in in crisis. And even something as simple as a door slamming can trigger somebody. Somebody like 21-year-old Christiana Carrero, who enlisted in the Army National Guard at 17, her senior year in high school. She says she was starstruck by the military. She liked the uniforms, the parades, the marching, the guns. She figured the military would put her through college and provide job security. And then the letter arrived. She shipped out to Iraq in July of 2009. Once there, she found even the basics were hard. There's a requirement for women soldiers to travel in twos at all times. And one day, she and her battle buddy tried to get into the bathroom, but the door was locked. The men's bathroom wasn't locked. It was just the women's bathroom. And they, they weren't even, you know, sugar-coated. Oh, yeah, no, we've had a couple rapes, so that's what we had to do. Carrero was given a combination code for the bathroom door. I'm like, oh, but all the men in the housing authority know it? That makes me feel safe. You better believe that I showered with, with my rifle, like, on the towel hook. <laughs> After that, you know, it caused... um. A great fear. Then there's the fear and anxiety caused simply by being in a war zone. You don't see people with half of their bodies blown off in a regular hospital in a city. Amy, who preferred not to use her last name, did three tours in Iraq. She says none of her experiences as an ER trauma nurse in the States prepared her for wartime medicine, beginning with her first patient. We removed a body from the stretcher that they were on onto our hospital stretcher and his arm coming off and me kind of standing there bewildered 
and someone running up to me and grabbing it out of my hand. And within two weeks, I was like, oh, body parts, I need a red bag. You know, you just become very hardened and very um, used to it really quick because you have to. And Amy says she started drinking heavily in Iraq. Alcohol is officially banned, but she found it was easily available. But it wasn't a problem through the three tours. Then she got home. My kids would come up to me and look at my soda and say, Mommy, can I have a sipper? Is there booze in there? Amy suffered from PTSD, but like so many of her peers, she was in total denial. Got into trouble at home and at work. Amy ended up trying to commit suicide, lost her nursing license, and was thrown in jail after two DUI arrests. She's in Jackie Kay's house on parole. Once home, women find that the Veterans Administration, the VA, is a bastion of care for male vets, not for women or families. And while things are changing, officials acknowledge that many of the improvements fall short. There are too many women willing to serve, and they are doing a good job, and they are very important to the whole defense posture of this nation. Connecticut's Commissioner of Veterans Affairs, Linda Schwartz, says post-combat problems aren't unique to women, but they do hit women especially hard. Not only is Jackie Kay's house a shelter only for women, but all the employees are women, something Linda Schwartz thinks is vital to the women veterans' recovery. You can't mainstream them, say, okay, you're going to go in there and sit with these men And if you have had sexual harassment or sexual assault, and more than 25% of the women in the military have experienced this, so it's one in four or more, I think we need to maintain that. We need to maintain the special clinics. But that's not the message being heard by thousands of homeless women veterans who leave the military and find the doors shut on what they had hoped would be a soldier's welcome home. For The World, I'm Susan Kaplan. I'd like to end the program where we began with a Marine who's just come back to the States and his mother, Alex and Patricia Hull of Framingham, Massachusetts. So we've just heard from a variety of voices, servicemen and women, Iraqis, people who are starting over. You're starting over, Alex, uh, and in a way, so is your mom. Tomorrow, Saturday, it's another day. What's the difference between Saturdays in Afghanistan and Saturdays in the U.S.? Uh, well, you know, Saturdays in Afghanistan, they were just, just like every other day. You know, we'd wake up and you'd throw your gear on and you'd go on patrol and you'd come back and you'd, you'd get a little bit of a break, time to get some food in your stomach, and then you'd, you know, you'd throw your gear right back on and, and step out again. But, I mean, Saturdays, now that I'm back here, you know, I, I get to sleep in and, you know, I never thought how good sleeping in would feel, you know, sleeping in a, in a nice warm bed, putting on a fresh pair of socks in the morning. Patricia, Alex served two tours. Are you worried that he'll he'll serve another? Yes, of course. He's got uh, four more months on his contact, and with the political climate as it is right now, I'm petrified. I want him out. <laughs> Would you serve again, Alex? Um, no. After my active service, I have four years of inactive service where I could be called back. But you know, I think the uh, I hope the the likelihood of that is very slim because the Marine Corps is trying to downsize their numbers now. But if, if I was asked to do another tour, I, I wouldn't. What are you guys going to do tomorrow, Patricia? I'm going to enjoy being his mom. I'm going to cook him a big breakfast and uh, make sure he has everything he needs and kiss his face as much as he'll let me and uh, not let him out of my sight. 
Patricia Hull, Alex Hull, I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and experiences, and uh, good luck in the months and years ahead. And to you and all the people who spoke with us in this special edition of The World Today, thanks for all you've done. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Marco. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back on Monday. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.